0: Hello and welcome to another instalment of the Day podcast. Today we're going to be discussing China, the coronavirus and Sinophobia or Sinoscepticism um, and whether this is going to become the latest phobia to be used to shut down criticism and dissent. Here to discuss this with me are two experts who've had their fair share of trouble. Uh, Benedict Rogers who's a human rights activist writer a leader of the East Asia team at Christian Solidarity Worldwide as well as the co-founder of Hong Kong Watch and Andreas Fulder, who is a senior fellow at the University of Nottingham Asia Research Institute and author of The Struggle for Democracy in Mainland China, Taiwan and Hong Kong. Andreas has also kindly given me permission to point out that he's also an excellent singer of Chinese folk music and if I manage to find it on YouTube so can you. So um, welcome both of you, thank you for joining me. Uh, let's jump straight into the latest news. So recent reports uh, suggest that uh, China has pressured the World Health Organization, uh, threatening to stop cooperating uh, with their investigation if, uh, if they announced that there was a global emergency, all the while stockpiling uh, medical and protective equipment from the US and elsewhere. And German intelligence suggests that this has cost possibly around four to six weeks in fighting the virus. Uh, US Secretary Mike Pompeo accused China of withholding virus samples needed for vaccine research. And the CCP, uh, having seemed to have misled the global community, the Five Eyes have accused them of an assault on international transparency. So I'd like to start by asking you both, why do you think that this is the way that China dealt with the virus? And what do you think the global ramifications of that are then, would you like to start?
1: Absolutely. Um, the first thing I should say just before directly answering your question is I think it's incredibly important to distinguish between China and the Chinese Communist Party regime. I know we use China as shorthand uh, and most of us know that we're talking about the Chinese government, but um, given that I know we're going to come on later in the discussion to the issue of xenophobia, um, it's really important that we do make that distinction. I um Love China. I first went to China when I was 18. I have many Chinese friends. Uh, It's a great ancient civilization that has uh, given much to the world. Um, But it's the Chinese Communist Party regime that's been in power for just over 70 years, which is a fraction of China's history, uh, that is the problem. But in answer to your question, um, the the Chinese Communist Party regime operates really with two fundamental uh, principles, I think Um, fear. Uh, and, uh, and lies or or, as chris Patton put it in his letter to the foreign secretary, mendacity, which is perhaps a more diplomatic way of uh, of 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 saying it um and china does the, the, the CCP does not uh, uh, want uh, to uh, allow the truth about a situation that is challenging to it or problematic to it uh, to be revealed so in its initial response to the virus, its, its attitude was to repress the truth rather than repress the virus. Uh, and that has led to the pressure on the WHO and all, all the problems that have affected the world that you've outlined.
0: Uh, Andreas?
2: Yeah, I would like to echo um, uh, the point that Ben uh, just made. Of course, we need to distinguish between the party uh, and the good people uh, uh, of China. Um, uh, they're not the same. There is no unity between the rulers and uh, the ruled, and so um, yeah, we need to bear this uh, in mind whenever um, either Ben or I make statements which are critical of the political regime. I would like to also add, uh, you know, one point uh, about um, uh, the Chinese Communist Party's um, um, attitude towards uh, the truth. Um, now. Uh, Professor Steve Zhang uh, once pointed out, and I thought it was very um, uh, interesting. uh, The Chinese Communist Party uh, holds the monopoly of truth in mainland China. Uh, So uh, whether it's the media, social media, the education system, uh, basically the Chinese Communist Party can define what is true or not. Uh, But of course, that level of censorship uh, does not yet extend uh, to the global discourse, and um, this explains also why um, uh, it appears that uh, the Chinese Communist Party tried so hard to influence the WHO in terms of the public messaging, um, because of course having um, uh, another global pandemic originating out of China is something uh, you know that is um, highly problematic. It, um, uh, it it's not good for the reputation of China. It does undermine the authority of the Communist Party. And um, the more we learn about this sorry saga, the more it transpires that indeed um, uh, the Chinese government has uh, um, misled the WHO and by extension the international community.
0: How, how do you think, Ben, that this um, affects international relations, particularly with um, international organizations? I'm thinking about the WHO Um, In particular, what's the relationship between China and the WHO and other international bodies? And do you think that um, their record, uh, as Andreas has has been saying in terms of their um, respect for the truth, um, whether this uh, actually marks the end of the credibility of the World Health Organization and puts the relationships of other international bodies with China um, at some kind of increased risk?
1: Yes, I, I think we seem to be seeing two things uh, going on in, in the world or in parts of, of the world which are almost in direct contradiction with each other. We see in, uh, in, in the UK, for example, and even more pronounced in the United States, uh, an increasing wakening up uh, to uh, the dangers of the Chinese Communist Party uh things that i've been saying for years and was often a almost a, a lone voice not quite a lone voice because andreas was saying it too but um but now senior po- politicians who i'd never heard talk about uh, the ccp or china before are, are, are saying these things and i think that's a positive thing there is a there are calls for a reevaluation of our policy towards uh, the chinese regime um But in the international organisations, and particularly the WHO, we're seeing almost the opposite trend, where the Chinese government seems to have extraordinary influence uh, and extremely, I would argue, dangerous influence. Um, And one example of that is the total exclusion of Taiwan from the WHO. And Taiwan actually is in stark contrast to the the way the CCP uh, handled this this crisis. Taiwan is an exemplary. A model of um, a government uh, handling the pandemic, both within its own territory extremely well, but also um, in regard to the rest of the world, being very generous in uh, donating uh, protective equipment and other forms of, of equipment. And of course, Taiwan is, is a, a vibrant democracy. And so there's a stark contrast between a Chinese speaking democracy and, and a totalitarian or authoritarian regime uh, across the water. Um, so the CCP's influence in the WHO and in other UN uh, agencies and other international uh, organizations is, I think, very alarming. Um, I, I have questions, I, I have sympathy with the US decision to suspend their funding for the WHO. I have question marks over whether it's um, strategically the right decision because the concern is you just cede uh, the WHO even more to the CCP's influence. Um, and I would rather uh, governments find ways to reform the WHO and, and address, address the imbalance of, of the CCP's um, influence there. But it is definitely a major concern.
0: Why do you think that China was able to put this pressure on the WHO in the first place? I know that there's been talk about... Um, the Director General's relationship, historical relationship with China, um, when he was in government in Ethiopia. Um, Do you have any thoughts on um, the the sway that China has over the WHO and whether it has similar sway over other international organisations because I know Ben has mentioned Taiwan already and obviously that's something that may have impacted the spread of the virus because Taiwan's warnings were ignored as a result of this. So um, do you have any uh, ideas about the kind of political implications and also the risks involved uh, with China having so much sway over particular organisations like the WHO?
2: Well, uh, you know, the disastrous uh, performance of the WHO is really indicative of um, a a wider malaise of uh, global governance. So for example, in recent years, the Chinese Communist Party has extended its influence in various international organizations, not just in the WHO, but think also of Interpol, and uh, more recently, the United Nations uh, Human Rights uh, Council. Um, So for example, let me talk a bit about Interpol. Um, They had uh, a major crisis in 2018 when its head, Meng Hongwei suddenly disappeared and uh, was later charged uh, and convicted in mainland China on grounds of corruption. And so this was you know, a very prominent um, uh, Chinese citizen leading Interpol, um, or more recently, you know, the United Nations Human Rights Council. Um, you know, China has now been granted the right, and I quote, this is um, you know, to play a key role in picking the world's bodies human rights investigators, including global monitors of freedom of speech, health, enforced disappearances and arbitrary detention. And that is of course um, a political regime which itself is um, uh, rightfully accused of endemic and systemic human rights uh, um, abuses. And so in a way, our global governance institutions, especially at the United Nations, are not in a good shape. Um, And as such, um, you don't have to agree with everything that Trump says or Pompeo says when it comes to multilateralism, of course. But um, that we have a problem with these um, international organizations is, I think, beyond uh, uh,
1: any doubt.
0: Ben, you're nodding along. What do you think of the implications of that?
1: I think the implications, if it's allowed to continue and and goes unchallenged, uh, are very serious. I mean, the Chinese regime is clearly trying to completely uh, reframe the human rights uh, framework. And I say that as someone who that's my primary focus. Um, And, you know, the UN uh, mechanisms, especially the UN Human Rights Council, uh, are incredibly valuable mechanisms for uh, highlighting human rights uh, issues. But if, if China's influence continues uh, in the way that Andreas has, has outlined, if it continues further down that path, um, you know, we, we're going to be in a new era of uh, not having the framework uh, to to um, properly highlight human rights concerns, but, but actually distorting and, and reframing and, and undermining human rights. Uh,
0: ben Wallace, the uh, Defence Secretary, Um, he said that China needs to be more open uh, and transparent Um, and it's been suggested I think by um, some commentators that one of them described uh, the government's response as being weaker than water and so I was wondering um, what do you think that we should be doing to um, hold China to account and if so how and as you've mentioned um, the impact of um, China on these global organizations and, and the risks involved that. What, what should we be doing to try to sort of leverage our own power strategically to push back against that in our own interests? Ben?
1: I actually recently wrote an article for the website conservativehome.com which set out uh, 10 uh, ideas but there were many more than 10 these these were just uh, some of the ideas but I think first of all we should be joining other countries uh, in calling for an international uh, inquiry into the causes of the pandemic. Um, China will well, has already opposed that and will continue, I'm sure, to do so. But uh, but I think we should be calling for that. I think we should be strengthening our alliances with like-minded friends and allies, um, democracies not only in Europe and North America and uh, Australia, um, but also democracies in the Asia-Pacific region like uh, Japan, South Korea, strengthening our friendship with Taiwan um, and, and trying to better coordinate uh, efforts because uh, you know the argument against doing anything about uh, china 's influence is uh, you know what, what is britain 's leverage what is britain 's influence in the world I, I think that underestimates our influence because we we do still have a, a disproportionate amount of influence for a country of our size, but nevertheless we 're much better if we stand together with like minded allies uh, and uh, coordinate and and speak with one voice. There are other things we should also be doing I, I think we should definitely be looking at. Diversifying our supply chain. I don't think anyone realistically would suggest that we should um, stop all trade with China. I don't think that's uh, really practical. But we should certainly be looking at not being so dependent on China for uh, for certain products and for and, and strengthening our trading relationships with uh, emerging economies in in Southeast Asia, in East Asia, um, India, Latin America, and, and so on. Um, I think one of the other things we should absolutely be doing is is completely ruling out uh, the deal with Huawei uh, for our 5G network. Um, And although the the government has said said before the pandemic that that would go ahead, um, I think it's highly likely that it it will not go ahead. And I certainly hope that's the case. Um, There are other things we should be doing, but I'll give Andreas a chance to, to give his views, but those are a few.
0: Andreas, what, what's your take?
2: No, I think uh, Ben has made a very comprehensive case for uh, a reformed British-China uh, policy. And um, so I'm very grateful for all these good uh, you know, ad- ideas and advice. I mean, what I would perhaps add is that um, what I find heartening is that there is um, awareness among uh, politicians, but also um, yeah, policymakers and the wider public, um, you know, how the Communist Party has ramped up uh, intimidation, uh, diplomacy tactics. So for example, um, there are now a lot of reports about um, so-called like wolf warrior kind of diplomats who are very, um, you know, uh, intimidating in their exchanges with their uh, Western counterparts. Um, But there is also great awareness now, I think here in the UK, but also in mainland Europe, you know, how the party state has used... um, corporate interdependence uh, for political interference. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: And of course, now during the COVID crisis, we have also learned, and there's ample evidence for that, uh, that um, the Commerce Party has uh, presented itself as a kind of neutral actor, kind of lending a helping hand, whereas very often, for example, um, the kind of PPE PPE equipment, when it wasn't actually faulty, when it was um, delivered from China, those were like commercial transactions. And so I think um, uh, this kind of, uh, we see a sea change um, uh, among uh, elite members of the British establishment, but also the European establishment, who realize that we actually have a problem uh, with, with the Communist Party. And I don't think that they have uh, solutions yet, but the fact that they are listening uh, uh, to, uh, you know, to uh, you know, the good advice of Ben and others, I think is, uh, is again
1: um, uh, heartening.
0: Do you think? Oh, sorry, Ben's going to come oh,
1: yeah. in. So, my apologies. I just wondered if I could add one quite key point that I missed from from my list, and that really builds on what Andreas has just said, which is on the human rights uh, front. Um, I think there has been, until recently, a very worrying tendency, based, I believe, actually, on a on a myth, which and the myth is that in order to trade with China, in order to uh, to have good engagement with China, you have to kowtow, and you have to be silent on, on human rights issues, at least in public. And I've always believed that to be a myth. And I think there are other countries that have shown themselves able to speak out and still trade. Um, but given the, the, both in mainland China and, of course, the erosion of freedom, uh, dramatic erosion of freedom in Hong Kong, um, it is, amounts to what pretty much everyone says is the worst crackdown on human rights, certainly since the Tiananmen Massacre arguably in some respects, particularly in regard to religious freedom, uh, since the Cultural Revolution, the situation of at least a million Uyghurs incarcerated in prison camps, um, and and many other examples that I I won't list here. But I I think we should be speaking out uh, much more robustly on the human rights issues, and and actually looking at accountability mechanisms, particularly for what amount to mass atrocities in the case of the Uyghurs. In the conservative home article, we should stop Operation Kowtow and start Operation Stand Up Tall.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Couldn't agree more. Um, just a quick question relating to both of the points that you made. Um, do you, how much do you think that there's so, uh, Andreas, you mentioned the um, sort of strategy of diplomacy that China seems to have gradually developed? It's much more aggressive and um, nearing on bullying, although I'm sort of hesitant to use the phrase. Um, and also, like you say, Ben, this cowtowing. How much do you think this has to do with um, perception um, and how China wants itself to be seen and potentially our own perception of ourselves, uh, not just us, but also our allies, um, in terms of how we might potentially be underestimating our own perception of ourselves? Do you think that we might be about to see a sort of turn towards more realistic, um strategic uh, diplomacy which perhaps i don't know if this is something that has been lacking uh maybe in, in the last decade or so
1: yes i mean i think i think there is a combination of um i mean we as a generalization i think we brits tend to be quite um self-deprecating sometimes in a in a healthy humorous way but but sometimes we talk ourselves down a bit too much and i think we we should remember that you know we are still um, a, a permanent member of the Security Council, a, a, a member of uh, uh, the, all the different G groups, the G8, the G20, um, uh, the Commonwealth, uh, NATO. Um, okay, we've left the European Union, but uh, but there are other international alliances that we are a, a, a key player in, and I think we shouldn't lose sight of that. And I think there is, um, I, I'll never forget when Xi Jinping visited the UK in 2015, I heard an American uh, businessman on um, the Today program, and he's uh, someone who was uh, has been based in Shanghai for many years, knows China extremely well, knows how to do business with China, and he was very critical of um, David Cameron's government for rolling out the red carpet in such a way you know and totally uh, refusing to talk about our values, our concerns, uh, at least in public. And he, he said this phrase that has stayed with me ever since. He said, and he was trying to make the point that actually, if you stand up for your values rather than kowtow, China, okay, they may not like it, but they, they are more likely to respect you for doing so than, uh, than if you kowtow. And he said this, these words, um, which is a direct quote and has always stayed with me. He said, if you act like a panting puppy, China will think that they have you on a leash. Uh, and I think there's a lot of truth in that, that actually you can have a much more um, mutually beneficial and effective uh, relationship if, if we are seen to have respect for our own values and heritage and, and, and stand up for them. Yeah, I would
2: uh, absolutely uh, um, support this view. And I would like to share with you a very um, interesting uh, experience that I've had in Brussels uh, seven years ago. Um, I gave um, a talk about how the European Union uh, and the uh, European uh, External Action Service could uh, perhaps support um, what could be termed like unofficial China or civil society a bit more. And I made, I thought, a a really compelling argument that while we can't directly support dissidents, but neither should we uncritically um, just give development aid and support to the Communist Party. And so following my um, uh, keynote, uh, a Chinese diplomat um, uh, raised his hand and then um, uh, said the following words. He said, um, I strongly recommend the European External Action Service not to um, uh, listen to this gentleman's presentation. And as you can imagine, there were 100 people, uh, the temperature in the room uh, suddenly uh, froze Uh, But I soon realized that this is what he kind of um, had to say in his official capacity. And um, after um, the panel ended, I went over to this uh, actually young diplomat and I said, um, "You know, here in the UK, we can agree to disagree without being disagreeable." And he immediately said, "This is what I had to say." And then we went to um, you know get, get 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 a coffee. And then we had a very good conversation. And he asked me, so why do people care about human rights in China? And then we had a conversation in Chinese for about 10, 15 minutes. And he ended our conversation with the words, if there were more people like you, our relationship would be better. So the, the same person who in front of 100 people kind of dismissed everything I said as um, uh, politically incorrect and uh, um, and uh, as hugely detrimental to the EU-China relationship, in private said, people like you are the people we need to have a better relationship. So all I can say is this is the kind of cognitive dissonance that we see when we deal with official uh, China. And I think more people need to understand these layers and these complexities.
0: Um, Strategically speaking, so yesterday um, there was that letter um, that was sent to uh, signed by twenty uh, MPs was sent to Liz Trust, the trade secretary, um, asking for the government to ensure that china that uh, our trade with China is more consistent with our strategic interests um, and they wanted the government to reassess uh, our trade and supply security something that you already mentioned Ben in terms of uh, diversifying our supply chains and so on um, and one of this was in response to a report by the Henry Jackson Society that found that we were particularly dependent on China in critical areas like pharmaceuticals, antiviral drugs, antibiotics, consumer electronics, metals, things like that. Um, and also you mentioned as well um, Huawei and the 5G network. And I think and I think this has been referred to by some as the digital silk road. I'm not sure if I'm getting that quite right. Um, but I was wondering whether, um, Andreas, you agree with uh, Bob Seely that we need to be weaning our dependency off china Um, what are your thoughts on this and how do you think that that connects to uh, what you were just saying about the sort of way that the chinese operate um which is not necessarily the same as you might expect from um other countries
2: well i recall that the foreign affairs committee published a report last year uh, making it actually quite clear that uh the chinese communist party is um in a way a threat to our international liberal order. And uh, so I think uh, one needs to recognize that um, simply by us, let's say the the British, the mainland Europeans, uh, the North Americans trading with uh, China hasn't kind of sped up, um, you know, liberalization or even ushered in political democratization in uh, China. And, this is now very clear because under uh, General Secretary Xi Jinping, uh, we have seen really a shift from what could be termed like hard authoritarianism to, towards uh, um, a one-person dictatorship and totalitarianism. And therefore, uh, even a commercial relationship with mainland China is not uh, you know, a value-free proposition. Um, yes, evidently, you know, British and European traders and investors can make money in China. Um, but whilst they are enriching themselves, they're also making, you know, a very um, problematic political regime more powerful. Um, and therefore, I would think that actually, and Ben just spoke about it, uh, a certain extent of economic decoupling is a must, in particular in uh, industries which are of national uh, uh, security um, interest, so IT. Uh, health industries, but I would actually even include education for example we have had a very worrisome version like reports about the encroachment on academic autonomy for example not just here in the uk but also in England, europe and um, again the uh, chessised party didn't play a, a positive role in this regard and so for example ring fencing um, uh, the you know the public expenditure for um, you know, higher education would make sense. And going back to, let's say, a publicly funded, uh, you know, um, higher education sector is uh, not just, it doesn't just make sense from, um, you know, the the interests of, you know, the the British public, but it also makes national security sense.
0: And Ben, how does, um, how does China use trade as a kind of tool for geopolitics because i know this is this is obviously a big topic with all of the um stuff around the belt and road initiative um what what's your take on as we we're saying that the need to decouple from our or well, we ourselves off of our dependency on china um, how do you think that we should be doing that and what what are the risks of um the way that china uses trade politically um in a way that other liberal democratic states wouldn't
1: well i think um there are several points uh, on this. I, I think China, in its rhetoric, clearly makes a lot of threats over trade uh, when countries do things that it doesn't like. Um, we've seen even just in recent weeks, particularly with Australia, um, as Australia has talked more about the need for an international inquiry into the pandemic, uh, uh, the Chinese regime has made all sorts of threats about stopping the imports of Australian wine and, 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 and beef and other goods. Um, and And of course, at times they they do follow through on their threats, but I think more often than not, actually their bark is worse than their bite, and there' have been examples, if you look back over recent years where um uh there might might have been a temporary um freeze, but at the end of the day, you know although the regime is ideological, they're also pragmatic in terms of wanting to uh, uh sell sell us products that we want to buy or, or buy our products and services that, that they want. Um, and, and in the end, uh, trade isn't uh, as significantly impacted as people fear. So they use it as a as a threat, uh, but um, they don't necessarily always follow through or follow through for the long term. But in answer to the second part of your question, how do we decouple? Um, I mean, I, I just think that we should be, um, and, I, and I actually said this in an article some months ago, long before the pandemic. So actually, it's something I've been thinking about for a while that if we want to be what what the government calls global Britain well there's a difference between global britain and 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 China Britain or, or CCP Britain um, and that doesn't mean we shouldn't have a relationship as in as much as we can with especially the people of China if we can minimize uh, the the links with the CCP regime um, but we ought to be um, looking at uh, uh, developed economies in East Asia, like Japan, Korea, and Taiwan; um, uh, emerging uh, economies like Indonesia, um, obviously long-standing places like like Malaysia, Singapore, um, Latin America, uh, and, and elsewhere. Um, and and I actually think we may well. This is a separate issue, but but related. One of the things that may come as a result of this pandemic is we may end up uh, actually investing more in our own. Uh, production uh, uh, at home, which I don't think is a bad thing. I would never want us to pull up the drawbridge and, and say let's do it all at home or you know Britain first. That's not that's not me. Um, I I want Britain to have very much a, a role in the global um, on the global stage, but that should be truly global. Not and I think we've put our eggs too much in one basket, and we we should spread them out a bit more.
0: See Andreas nodding along. Have you got uh, yeah. some thoughts on on how we might decouple ourselves? Well,
2: actually, uh, I just would like to add some complimentary uh, points here, because I do teach uh, a, a module about EU-China relations and, of course, also UK-China relations. And my students are always actually fascinated by um, the following fact. Um, you see, from our you know, British perspective, um, actually, British exports of goods, I should say, not services, yeah because services are more or less restricted in the Chinese context. Um, they only make up um, about 10% of British exports to, uh, to the European Union, so one-tenth. Um, also in terms of uh, imports from, from China, they make up uh, less than 20% of what we're importing from mainland Europe. Uh, so regardless of what people think about Brexit um, and, and the economic implications, I think that the idea that somehow trade with China will kind of, um, you know, pick up the slack, so to speak, and kind of help um, uh, cushion the blow of leaving, you know, the um, European market, I think is is fanciful. But what that also means is that actually, in a way, our so-called, you know, quote unquote, uh, dependence on the Chinese market has been uh, completely overblown. And let me just make one more point. I remember very vividly when David Cameron and George Osborne were like, um, promoting the golden era, etc. And they used these uh, huge numbers. And they spoke about 1 billion, 5 billion, 10 billion. But you see, this was all, in a way, propaganda. Uh, because in the big scheme of things, you know, 1 billion or 5 billion, it, that, that's peanuts if you look at the overall trade volume. Especially in terms of services, of course, and just one uh, point I think uh, that kind of uh, again puts this all in perspective. Uh, in 2014, the European Commission um, published a memo, which made it very clear that all of the European member states, their combined uh, trade and, and services that they sell to Switzerland, that amount is higher than what they um, export to China, and no one would say, you know, Switzerland, you know, the market of the future. But these are some realities. Everyone can look up these statistics. So I think by perhaps infusing some of these, uh, you know, existing realities into the public discourse, I think perhaps politicians and decision makers would feel less compelled to, I don't know, make unnecessary compromises.
0: Do you think that maybe the um, coronavirus is is a mixed blessing and that it may have sped up the process of us and Um, other Western countries realizing that perhaps investment from China might be um, more of a risk than it is a benefit.
2: Absolutely. Let me give you an example uh, from Germany, which is uh, uh, my my, uh, country, like um, uh, much longer than I have lived in in Germany, but um, of course I do still follow what's happening there. And the problem with German uh, China policy, for example, is that the car manufacturing industry has an outsized influence on the government because they do sell a lot of cars, like BMWs, Audis, VWs to to China. But the problem with that is that actually, again, in the big scheme of things, um, these are very narrow corporate interests that should not override, let's say, the German national interest. And uh, in a way, uh, as you just mentioned with COVID-19, I mean, the economic losses will be gigantic. And so in the future, I think if, um, you know, the CEOs of VW and BMW say, well, you need to protect our export market in China, then people will c- can say, but, you know, COVID-19 totally, de- well, not destroyed the German economy, but, you know, led to a recession. And, you know, if you, if you can then weigh those two things against each other, then it's quite clear that, you know, these, you know, very narrow, um, you know, corporate interests should not uh, trump, you know, the national interest.
0: Mm-hmm. Ben, what, what do you think about the sort of the risks of Chinese investment? Because I know there's been a lot of talk about particular countries that get a lot of investment from China and then they end up um, completely indebted to them and uh, vulnerable to their bullying tactics. Um, what, what are your thoughts on this?
1: Yeah, I think it's a very big concern. And I mean, we see that particularly in um, the the what we generally term the developing well, It's not a phrase I I, I really like, but um, people know what I mean by that. Um, uh, Where, for example, um, you know, in somewhere like uh, Sri Lanka, um, China now uh, effectively owns um, uh, the port. They own ports, I think, in a number of other countries. And and quite a number of countries have found um, what appeared to be um, much needed uh, assistance has turned out to be a... A Kind of stranglehold uh, on them where when, when they are unable to pay back the, the debt that they owe, um, China then en- ends up actually having control of strategic uh, things like ports uh, and, um, and you know we talked earlier about certain sectors, uh, even in our own economy. I', I hope we never end up in that situation of actually being so indebted to China that they, they take control um, because we have no choice, but at the moment, and we do have a choice, but we're actually voluntarily. Uh, uh, giving them stakes in, you know, in British steel, and we're talking about Huawei, and you know, we had the nuclear power uh, issue with Hinkley Point, um, and it just seems to me, and there was talk, of course, of the high-speed uh, um, rail link giving giving uh, Chinese companies uh, a stake in that too, and it seems to me to be mad. We, Ian Duncan Smith, in a debate on Huawei earlier this year, said that we would not. Um, uh, And Andreas, forgive me, this may or may not be appropriate analogy, but I'm quoting Ian Duncan Smith. He said, we we would not have given um, uh, a stake in our telecommunications uh, network uh, in the 1930s to uh, German companies that were involved in providing surveillance for uh, Auschwitz. Um, And we wouldn't. And so why are we doing that with with Huawei? So I think there are all sorts of issues uh, and dangers with Um, Not all kinds of Chinese investment, but certain sectors and certain ways.
0: Um, James Forsyth wrote an article in The Spectator where he he basically said that he thinks that Sino-scepticism is going to become a feature um, of the Tory party going forward and actually that it might serve as a kind of unifying um, force after after Brexit. Um, And... If that is the case, then we might see the left, it's likely that we will see the left going in the opposite direction and being, I suppose you could call it, sinophilic. Um, do you, what do you think that there is, and this is this is a big question, and we've covered some of it already, but what do you think that there is to be skeptical about China? What What is, what is the nature um, of the Chinese state? I know that Andreas, you've um, spoken about this before, and the sort of the ways in which, um, China is a communist country? What, what, what are the things that we should be wary about?
2: It's, a, it's an excellent question. And, um, you know, sometimes people ask me, you know, why should we care, for example, about, you know, how China is being governed? Yeah, and uh, often it's very hard-nosed realists who kind of put this to me. But I tend to uh, answer this way. It matters because, of course, the Chinese Communist Party tries to protect its authority within China. They do so through... Uh, carrots and sticks and I call them like uh, the rule by bribery and rule by fear. But they have a problem um, and that is of course there are uh, Chinese people all around the world in, in the Chinese diasporas and they cannot be sure that um, uh, about their their loyalties. Now that shouldn't be even a question because often uh, our Chinese friends are the naturalized Australians or British or Americans um, But uh, what the Chinese Communist Party really worries about uh, is that, for example, dissident community would gain support among overseas Chinese, ethnically Chinese or uh, people would still speak Chinese and have uh, perhaps family in China. And since these are our neighbors, our friends, for example, here in the UK, um, since we, we live in an open liberal democratic society, it should really concern us That um, they're still subject to those political pressures. Um, And they are, in a way, just partially free. Because, let's say, if you were um, a a Chinese living in the UK and you're openly critical of the Chinese party state, you may get into real trouble. It's not just um, people like Ben and I who are getting, like, (laughs) um, uh, you know, some. you know, unwanted attention and harassment, but just think about our um, Chinese friends. Now, and understandably, then a lot of people decide not to speak up. Um, But you know, this is a form of censorship that goes beyond the shores of mainland China. And I don't have like a solution um, to this problem, but I think this is something we really need to address because we need to ensure that everyone in the UK can speak his or her mind freely, and without fear or favor. Right now, I don't think we can uh, uh, ensure this. And that is unsustainable.
0: Ben, what, what do you think specifically from the um, human rights perspective, because I know that's your area of, of real expertise. Um, what, what is, the, the, you know, what is the, the Chinese Communist Party? What, what is the Chinese state? What's its nature? what should we be skeptical about and worried about
1: well its nature uh ever since it's it uh you know over the last 70 years has to varying degrees been uh to uh, control to repress to um stamp out any kind of um perceived uh opposition or, or criticism but I, I think there is a difference uh or a difference of degree um under xi jinping in that um uh Over the sort of 40 years from the late 1970s uh, until Xi Jinping came along, uh, there were, apart from obviously the the Tiananmen massacre and and other moments, but there were periods, especially in the early 2000s where there was a comparative relaxation. And I'm not saying that uh, it was all sort of free and, and happy. Of course, it was still restricted, it was still repressive, but there was nevertheless a comparative opening up. I remember about 10 years ago, uh, meeting a group of human rights, Chinese human rights lawyers in Beijing in a restaurant very open, openly uh, at the table talking about their own work and the prospects for reform. Um, I, I met bloggers, I met civil society activists, who all of whom you know, w- were followed, were, were um, surveyed, but, but were basically allowed within certain limitations to, um, to, to, to do what they were doing. And under Xi Jinping, all of that has disappeared. The, the lawyers that I met were either uh, jailed, uh, disbarred, uh, or literally disappeared, and, and uh, uh, we, we don't know where they are. Um, uh, so there's so there's a, been a significant crackdown on on civil society, on lawyers, on, on bloggers, on journalists. Um, we see, of course, as I mentioned earlier, the situation of of the Uyghurs, um, the Uh, most severe crackdown on Christians that there has been since the Cultural Revolution, arguably. Um, And a lot of this is also tied to uh, uh, um, the first personality cult that we've seen in China since Mao. Um, You know, you didn't see pictures of Deng Xiaoping or Hu Jintao or Jiang Zemin very much, but now in churches in China, state-controlled churches, uh, pictures of of Xi Jinping, uh, party banners, um, party propaganda are being put up alongside religious uh, symbols. And then lastly, um, of course, with as I mentioned earlier, the situation in Hong Kong. And I think, I think there are two things to say in summary on this overall human rights situation. One is that, um, uh, well, all of the human rights violations, and especially those that reach the level of, of mass atrocities, are violations of, of international human rights uh, laws and norms uh, and therefore, if we believe in uh, the various international treaties, the, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, and, and and other documents, if we believe in the international rules-based order, uh, we have an interest in speaking out uh, against those atrocities. We do it with it, with other countries, and China seems to have this exceptionalism where we 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 are nervous about speaking out, and we shouldn't be. But in the particular case of Hong Kong, we have an added. Uh, uh, both interest and responsibility for, for two reasons. Firstly, Hong Kong is still um, a major financial uh, hub, uh, but, that, but its success as a financial hub is underpinned by the principles of the rule of law, transparency, uh, 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 openness, and um, Hong Kong's autonomy. And if those uh, pillars are uh, continue to be eroded as they are increasingly so, um, Hong Kong's viability as a financial hub uh, is called into question. That ought to be of concern to everybody. But even more importantly, China signed an international treaty with the United Kingdom, the Sino British Joint Declaration, which is lodged at the United Nations. And it's now trampling all, all over it. And if we're not willing to sign up, sorry, to stand up for um, what we signed up for uh, in that treaty, um, then we're allowing China not just to trample on Hong Kong's freedoms, but actually to trample on uh, the international rules-based order? Mm-hmm.
0: Of, obviously, uh, we were talking before about the um, the importance of transparency because it has real implications in terms of global health, obviously. Um, so presumably there's an interest um, in terms of our own um, selfish interests as, as a nation to uh, try to bolster freedom of religion, freedom of expression, human rights in China so that we can push them perhaps towards the kind of transparency that is also um a defense uh, not just for us but also for minorities and the majority population in china how do you think that we can work towards that in china given that there's obviously this censorious element and china is obviously been quite adept at, at censoring criticism even outside of its borders What what's the the you know if you had any recommendation of how we might go about, or even the government might develop policies that would help to support that. I know, Andreas, you mentioned um, supporting civil society. Um, do you have any ideas on how we might do that? Or is it an impossibility? Andreas?
2: Okay, I think one really hard nut to crack, but ultimately, you know, this is something that should be discussed, um, uh, you know, uh, by politicians and uh, foreign policymakers is Um, under the conditions of what uh, is often called the Great Firewall of China, which is of course um, uh, the censorship of uh, the the Chinese internet, mm, it is very difficult, I think, for us to actually have an open-ended dialogue with our Chinese friends. Because um, if the Chinese Communist Party has the ability to shield the Chinese population from what they deem um, inappropriate information, Um, then we're always going to deal with this uh, information asymmetry. It doesn't mean that, of course, our counterparts are not uh, well-informed. There are people who use um, the VPNs and who are also active, let's say, even on Twitter. Um, But you see, for uh, the broad masses of people, um, I think the Great Firewall is a big problem. And to have an entire country basically running its own intranet um, is the opposite of you know a global inter- or international community, um, and then of course uh, add to that you know the the language barrier and cultural differences. All of that makes it even more complicated on on both sides to have a you know constructive dialogue. Um, and so perhaps you know depending on whether or not, for example, this investigation into the origins of COVID nineteen, you know how that makes headway. Um, if, for example, the authorities say we will not have it, then perhaps a rather unfriendly countermeasure would be to say, okay, we will provide free internet in China by like, sending out more satellites uh, and, and ensuring that whoever in China wants to go online can do so. <laughs> you know, I mean, these are ideas that have already been devo- developed and uh, you know, um, shared in previous years. Now, how realistic is it that? you know, Western liberal democracies will get their act together and do this? I don't know. But I mean, maybe it's uh, about time to have these conversations, because otherwise, you know, we will always have to kind of deal with the Great Firewall of uh, China. And it's, it's neither in the interest of the good people of China, nor is it in our interest.
0: Ben, how should, how should we scale the Great Firewall of China? <laughs> Besiege it? <laughs>
1: Well <laughs> I very much agree with uh, with what Andreas has said, and I think it ought to be um, a priority um i am I obviously like all of us, I use the internet, but I, i'm I'm absolutely no uh technological expert so i so I don't know the mechanics of how you do it but um, but if it can be done uh, absolutely i think um, I've done a lot of work on North Korea as well, and one one of the main uh sort of themes of of my advocacy on North Korea is to Um, break what we call the information blockade by the North Korean regime. And I think the same applies uh, perhaps even more so to to China. Um, So we should definitely be doing that. But but if I may, could I just add one other thing that on the Human Rights front, I think we should also be doing, which is that um, there's been a lot of talk in the last year or so about uh, Magnitsky style sanctions uh, generally. And I know that uh, from what I hear that Dominic Raab as Foreign Secretary Uh, is is a real champion of Magnitsky-style sanctions in general. Um, I think as a backbencher, he was one of the leading proponents of the initial legislation. Um, The government's committed to putting forward the secondary legislation to to establish the framework for the sanctions. Um, I know that's been delayed because of the pandemic, but um, everything I hear uh, indicates that Dominic Raab believes in this. But if you don't apply Magnitsky sanctions to um, individuals in the Chinese Communist Party who are responsible for uh, the incarceration, the torture, the slavery of more than a million Uyghurs um, and other, m- many other human rights abuses, you know, who do you apply them to? If, if you can't apply them to one of the worst human rights situations in the world, then, then of what value are they? So I would argue um, looking at applying Magnitsky sanctions to targeted individuals, not China as a country, not Chinese ordinary Chinese people, not blanket sanctions, but targeted sanctions, I think, should be in the toolbox.
0: Before we um, move on to talk a little bit more about the Chinese censorship or the CCP censorship, um, I was wondering if you'd both be able to um, tell our viewers or our listeners um, a little bit more about your own personal experiences of of backlash against your own um, activism or, um, in your case, Andreas, your academic work on the subject. Um, Ben, would you like to start? Sure, I'll,
1: I'll try to condense it because it's quite a long list, but, um, but very briefly, um, uh, in I've had several forms uh, of, of this sort of pressure from the Chinese Communist Party. The most obvious was obviously in October 2017, I um, went to, tried to go to Hong Kong. Um, I had lived in Hong Kong for five years previously for the first five years after the handover from 97 to 2002 when i went back and i've been back many times over the years but when i went back in october 2017 uh i was told i was taken aside at the airport and told that on the instructions of beijing i was not welcome in hong kong and i was put back on a plane um and since my case there've been a number of other uh foreigners who've had the same thing happen um and in fact the financial times asian news editor who'd been based in hong kong was was expelled from hong kong um but i think i was. Certainly, one of the first uh, uh, Westerners to have this happen the 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 uh, some advantage to to that incident, although I would never have sought it and definitely didn't want it um, was that it did generate quite a lot of publicity, and I very much encouraged people to turn that publicity into attention on Hong kong i didn't want publicity f- you know, for myself, but if it could be used to spotlight what we were already seeing then, and it's got much worse since but the erosion of freedom in Hong Kong and, and autonomy. Um, then, then you know, I wanted it to serve that good purpose, and it drew um, a statement from the foreign secretary at the time, who's who's now the prime minister. Um, it, it was raised in both houses of parliament and and got quite a lot of media attention. But since then, I've had uh, a few other uh, things. I've had, um, for example, a succession of anonymous letters. Uh, coming to my home address in London. My home address isn't uh, readily available. Clearly, it's, you can find it, but it's not something I advertise. Um, but not only my home address, but also some of my, uh, well, all of my neighbors in the street that I live in, in London. So the first letter that came had my uh, picture on it and the words, watch him. And it was addressed to dear, dear resident, uh, you know, this person lives in your street, will you please keep an eye on him, find out what his activities are. Thankfully, thankfully, my neighbours are kind of bright enough to, even though they didn't know me, to um, to uh, not believe it, and and uh, it was fine. But but I had um, probably twenty or so of those letters. My mother, who lives in a different part of the country, uh, received um, probably half a dozen or so letters saying, "Will you please tell your son to stop uh, doing what he's doing?" And, she just laughed and said, I, I gave up trying that years ago. <laughs> um, and uh, my employers uh, also had one letter saying that, uh, you know, if I didn't stop what I was doing, they, my my well-being could not be guaranteed. Um, I've also had emails saying the same thing. Whoever was behind this seemed to start off with with post and then sort of moved into the 21st century a bit belatedly relatedly. And... and and started causing uh, uh, chaos on, on, on email, both with me and then by sending fake email addresses in my name, and Andreas I'm sure will add, want to add to this, but um, emails using my name um, in a totally fake e- email address that have been sent to MPs and prominent journalists and, and others. Um, but then if I can just briefly add two other types of, of activity, um, I have had at least four Different members of Parliament, on four different occasions, telling me uh, that in various ways they have had either phone calls or it's come up uh, in face-to-face meetings with the Chinese ambassador or the Chinese embassy, specifically asking them to tell me to stop uh, speaking out. Um, and in to their credit, all, all four MPs, you know, made it clear they were not telling me to, to stop. They were just letting me know that they'd had these. Uh, lobbying efforts by the Chinese uh, embassy. Um, and then very finally, there was the incident you may be aware of at the Conservative Party conference in 2018, where um, a Chinese state television uh, reporter actually ended up um, physically assaulting a, a, a volunteer, but, but, um, and that was caught on camera, and in fact, she ended up being uh, convicted of, of common assault. I was not the person who who got uh, physically assaulted, but uh, um, I was the initial target of her aggression when um, she disrupted a meeting, a fringe meeting at the party conference, with um, three very prominent Hong Kong activists and myself. And when I was making my closing remarks, she uh, started uh, really screaming at me. And it was interesting, actually, the thing that caused her to be so angry is very relevant to the topic we're, we're discussing today because. I had said in my closing remarks that I wanted to emphasize, I am not anti-China. In fact, I'm very pro-China as a country and as a people. Uh, I am critical of, of the Chinese Communist Party regime. And she then started uh, really screaming at me furiously, saying that I was a liar and that I was trying to destroy China as, as if I had that capacity. <laughs> um, and uh, and uh, that I was you know a, a threat to China. Um, So that was, and I'm sure it was not an impromptu uh, moment. I'm sure it was planned and staged, and she seized her moment at that point to presumably send me a message that they're they're watching me and they're um, interested. I'm just amazed that a country of that size and supposedly a country that wants to be seen as a superpower, um, for example, begins a meeting with an MP, as as happened. uh, The meeting that was supposed to be talking about Global issues like climate change and trade and other key uh, international issues. The first thing on their agenda was, "Will you please get Ben Rogers to to shut up?" I'm uh, I'm rather surprised by that. Is this
0: uh, is this all very familiar to you, NJS?
2: Well, uh, your
0: experience.
2: Ben and I were meeting, uh, let's see, uh, virtually for the first time, but we do know each other, and um, uh, Ben. Uh, another uh, Hong Kong and um, uh, human rights activist, Luke De Pulfour, and actually also the chairman of the Foreign Affairs Committee, um, Tom Tung, um, including myself, we all have been uh, victims of uh, a cyber bullying and smear campaign over the past six months at least. And in the case of Ben, this uh, goes um, back even a couple of years now. And. Um, I wrote a, a memo for the Foreign affair, uh, for, for the foreign and Commonwealth Office in February, which I made public in end of uh, April, uh, also with the intent to actually make the wider public uh, um, aware um what actually happens when you publicly criticize the uh, Chinese party state. Because uh, previously, uh, very often in conversations that I've had with colleagues, but also you know, members of the public, they would say, well, maybe isn't this kind of um, uh, threat of the Chinese Communist Party overblown? Um, I mean, how much can they really influence and interfere in our domestic affairs here in the UK? But, you know, here we are, um, where, (laughs) you know, a very prominent British politician, uh, two very um, uh, outspoken British human rights activists and uh, a German national who happens to live and work in Nottingham and uh, study China town of Hong Kong, we're all at the receiving end of, um, yeah, online harassment. And this really k- kind of uh, underscores that um, uh, the Chinese Communist Party does care what Ben is saying or I'm saying. Now, I sometimes, I, I just find it yeah, also uh, amusing in a way because our influence, um, if, if one is perfectly honest, is, is still very limited. I mean, I'm, I'm glad that people are listening to what I have to say. and. I think having these conversations is great, but it's not like I'm the personal advisor to uh, Prime Minister Johnson or um, kind of I'm, I'm like kind of uh, ghost you know, the, the China policy of this government. And, and so, to see, you know, that um, perhaps agents of the, the Chinese state or non-state uh, agents who feel compelled to act in the interest of the Communist Party are doing this in a very systematic way. Uh, speaks to kind of the, the the nature of the problem we're dealing with.
0: Would I be right to say that uh, Andreas, you've you've had some issues where you've been accused of being racist because of uh, was it an open letter um, that you had arranged with some other academics who decided then not to not to sign it? Could you tell us a bit more about that? Uh,
2: let me tell you a little bit about that because it's actually linked, indeed, to this. Um, uh, uh, cyber bullying and, and harassment campaign, but also um, uh, we can talk, of course, a little bit about this uh, entire issue of um, you know, whether a critique of the, the Communist Party amounts to like, racism. About a month ago, um, there were 100, uh, what could be called establishment uh, uh, scholars in China, who published an open letter uh, kind of defending the Communist Party, the Chinese government's handling of the crisis. And when uh, I read this and some of my associates read it, we felt like this is really, this is not good. This is not acceptable because um, here, uh, Chinese society is actually being used by the party to kind of do the party's bidding. so we felt compelled we should respond to that. So we drafted um, an open letter that um, Ben has signed and many others have signed. We have now more than 200 signatories. There are public figures, security analysts and China specialists. And that is a good sign. It also shows that there are more and more people who are um, uh, not just um, unhappy about what the Communist Party did or didn't, in this case, informing uh, international society. But we also, in that open letter, actually emphasized how many um, critical intellectuals, but also health professionals and citizen journalists actually tried to create transparency and report and warn. Uh, not just uh, the Chinese uh, public, but also uh, the international community about the dangers of this virus. But what I found very interesting is that when we canvassed um, for sign- signatories um, and asked people to sign, you know, some people said, I'm not into this. this is, I-, I like to do academic research. I don't do advocacy and that's fine. And that's a perfectly legitimate reason not to sign. But there were also individuals who told me, you know, I agree with what you write. Whatever you say in that letter is correct. But I don't want to put my name to this because I'm afraid I might be kind of seen as kind of um, almost similar to the Trump administration, because they're very outspoken in their criticism of China and the Communist Party. And I just dislike Trump and, and what he and his administration stands for. And that's why I'm not going to sign a letter that is actually critical of the Chinese Communist Party. That gave me a lot of food for thought, because I thought, like, if let's say quote unquote, you know, progressives in Europe, but also in the United States are afraid to sign an open letter that is perfectly fine, um, you know, which expresses explicit kind of solidarity with the good people of China. and happens to be critical, of course, of the Communist Party, just because they don't want to be lumped together with, you know, the Trump administration then this is really a problem because it does undermine our freedom of speech. It is um, kind of probably tied into, you know, the kind of culture wars that we see in Europe and in the United States. And I think it's very unhealthy because it deprives in the way that the public discourse of these voices.
0: This this brings us very neatly onto the subject of Sinophobia, which is a term that skepticism I think, is something that um, was probably more widely used. Whereas in the last couple of weeks, I've seen, um, the word Sinophobia um, seems to be more in use, especially on, on Twitter. If, if uh, viewers or listeners want to look up the hashtag Sinophobia on Twitter to see the sorts of things that um, are being accused of that. Um, for example, I that Chinese profiteers were being uh, or were, would be sent to jail for um, sending COVID-19 supplies to China. Um, And that was accused of, uh, and this is a quote, echoes of Sinophobia in 19th century Australia. Um, And so obviously we've seen an increase in um, attacks on, recorded attacks on um, Asian people, Chinese people. Um, And this seems to be lumped together with criticisms of the Chinese Communist Party. So if you look at the way that the accusation of Sinophobia is used, it seems to be used against people who are making these criticisms. Um, and that's interesting because if we look at the way that um, other phobias have been used in the past, so for example, the use of uh, Islamophobia against people who are making criticisms of uh, Islamic belief or practice, um, we might expect that this could be something that turns into a bit of a problem when it comes to being able to point out, um, as already there seems to be an issue not only from the, the censorship coming from um, China itself, but also um, self-censorship um, from people in Western countries. Uh, this might turn out to, to make it even more difficult to highlight the sorts of things that we're not talking about in terms of China's um, behaviour that we seem to sort of turn a blind eye to under normal circumstances. And I think especially as we saw with the World Health Organisation, the very first thing that that they, they seemed to do was come out saying that actually stigma was more dangerous than the virus itself. Um, and then to... Give advice on how what language we should use when talking about the virus talking about the Wuhan not talking about the Wuhan virus Chinese virus Asian virus and so on so I was wondering if I could get your thoughts on whether you think that Sinophobia is going to be become the new phobia in vogue um, and whether you think that it's likely that that might be used to silence criticism of the CCP and if so what might we be able to do to stop that from
1: yeah, I mean I think it's definitely a real concern. And I'm I, I was shocked uh, in recent months to see some of the incidents of uh of violent attacks or, or verbal abuse of uh ethnic Chinese and in some cases not even ethnic Chinese but East Asian uh people. Um there was the, the Singaporean young man in who was badly physically attacked in, in Oxford Street, I think, and there've been other other cases. And I've been very um very proactive on my social media and, and uh, in any other opportunity to to contemn such incidences um, for two reasons. I mean, firstly, uh, I would do so anyway, just morally, and I think um, like all forms of racism it, that they're basically based on, on, on real ignorance and, and stupidity because, uh, East Asian um, because of the actions of the CCP. Um, it is just is absurd. It makes no sense. So, so, um, so it's right to to take a strong stand against it on uh, you know principle and on moral grounds. But I think it's also really important um, in terms of how we deal with the CCP and in terms of getting the message that uh, we've been conveying in uh, in this discussion across. Because um, if we if we aren't clear that we stand against xenophobia and against anti Chinese racism that will play into the CCP's uh, agenda of trying to make this narrative uh, a, a about a clash between China and the West. And it shouldn't be that, it should be about a, a struggle between the values of, of freedom, democracy, human rights, the rule of law uh, uh, versus uh, repression and, and authoritarianism and, and mendacity. Um, and so we should be really clear that our focus is the CCP, we should be, Uh, consistently, uh, not just condemning, but trying to find ways to to counter um, uh, real Sinophobia. Um, And you mentioned the parallel with with Islamophobia, and that's something I've thought about quite quite a a lot. um, uh, Because, uh, you know, in that context, I would distinguish between actually three things, um, uh, radical uh, Islamism, which is the ideology that we should be and the jihadi actions that go with it that we should be opposing. Um, Islam as a whole, which is a religion with a, a whole variety of interpretations and, and a rich culture and history that, uh, you know, we may we may agree or disagree with different practices, but as a whole I think we should um, respect uh, because you can't generalize any way about it with its variety of, of interpretations. And then Muslim people who we should absolutely be uh, protecting and 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 condemning acts of racism against them, and in the same way with China, you know, the CCP is the radical Islamism equivalent uh, on this trajectory. Um, China, as a culture, as a nation, um, is of course it's not a religion, but but the parallel is uh, uh, is there with with Islam in terms of how we should respect it and Chinese people who we should be um, defending and, and actually working to help. Oh, because they're the primary victims of the CCP. We shouldn't be uh, holding them responsible. We should be trying to, to help uh, them find their, their, their freedom.
0: Andreas, what, what are your thoughts?
1: Um,
2: well, Ben made such an eloquent uh, case um, that, of course, we should uh, fight racism in all their forms, um, whether it's Islamophobia, Sinophobia, um, so there's really not that much that I can add Points. Uh, uh, point. Um, I would just add perhaps like the another insight you know we are all victims in a way of the Chinese Communist Party, as we discussed, Ben and I and others we've been harassed for uh, being outspoken about um you know the, the Communist Party's actions uh, in mainland China, but also in Hong Kong and other places um but of course um the Chinese diaspora is, um, in a way, also um, under pressure. Um, And as I said before, um, I speak uh, without fear or favor, Um, but if their speech um, on social media and elsewhere is being monitored and they they feel they cannot, uh, let's say, criticize the Communist Party, then we do have a problem. And so, uh, yeah, this idea that um, yeah criticism of uh, a political regime uh, amounts to a kind of racism is just uh, nonsensical, because it rests on the assumption that there is a unity between the party and the people, um, that there is um, you know um, a complete uh, you know uh, match between the rulers and the ruled. But that's of course not the case uh, in China, But the Communist Party. Um, uh, has some popular support, I would concede that, but it doesn't have uh, democratic political legitimacy. And so the idea that somehow uh, the, the party state kind of speaks um, uh, on behalf of the Chinese people, not just in China, but also around the world is, is, is fanciful. And so I think as just as a good practice and Ben is doing this, I'm doing this, uh, leading politicians like Pompeo do that, we should always distinguish between you know, the good people uh, in China and uh, the party, they're not the same.
0: So the, the hour has absolutely flown by. Um, just before we um, end the podcast, I'd like to ask you just for some final, uh, final thoughts on how you think this will affect the sort of post-coronavirus um, global order and, and what impact do you think all of this is going to have on China's influence globally? Um, ben would you like to give your final thoughts?
1: Yes, I mean I think that uh, I would never obviously have believed or and certainly would never have wished for a, pan, a global pandemic with the terrible consequences to, to wake people up. I, I wish we could have woken up without uh, such a high price but if there is one good thing to come out of this terrible time I hope that it will be a complete re-evaluation of how we engage uh, with the, the Chinese Communist Party. And I think I do see encouraging signs of that happening, both among uh, politicians in the UK who we've talked about, um, and of course in the United States. But also what's interesting is, um, uh, and I know we don't have time to get into this, but, but something that's emerged in recent uh, months is the uh, way that uh, Africans uh, in China have been treated in the context of COVID-19, and they've been subjected to is leveled against critics of the CCP. <laughs> this is a very strong charge of racism uh, in the way that uh, that that foreigners, particularly Africans, have been treated um, uh, in China, um, and that has that has caused African countries that previously had a very strong uh, relationship with with China um, and with the CCP to be to be critical in an unprecedented way. Um, so I think there could be rethinking, not only in the West, but around the world. I think the CCP's handling of this has really damaged its reputation in the world, but but helped people to wake up to the dangers. And I hope there will be a real rethinking that, and who knows, maybe, I know people say this could be China's Chernobyl uh, moment in that it could lead to um, the, the undermining and the eventual uh, collapse of the regime. I'm not making that prediction, but but I'm I'm sort of posing that question out there. That um, could we see uh, a rethinking that that is not just a rethinking in, in foreign policy towards China, but actually a rethinking within China itself that might lead to some positive change. In allow us to
2: overcome this um, impossible impossible binary choice between uh, being either a Sino, uh, file or a sinophobe. This is just not um, the choice uh, ahead of us. Instead, I think it's high time that we um, start distinguishing between what could be termed official China. This is, you know, these are the organizations and individuals, networks uh, who are under control uh, of the Communist Party, and what could be termed unofficial China. And those are the independent minded um, academics, public interest lawyers, writers, journalists, and uh, it is uh, unofficial China that we should pay more attention to. And um, I think it's high time uh, for us uh, as members of the international uh, community to stand in solidarity uh, with the good people in mainland China who are uh, calling for greater freedom of speech and um, uh, freedom of expression
0: thank you so much guys for joining me this has been it run right over time um i hope everybody who is watching has enjoyed the video if you did please like subscribe uh, keep an eye out for our future podcasts and thank you very much for watching